JavaScript, NetUSB, Honda log for shell FTC. All that and more, it's the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. I am Paul. He is Doug. And we got that flipped around. <laughs> I I think you made a genuine mistake there, didn't you? It I did. It wasn't actually a joke. I'm Doug. Was... I'm on autopilot, as always, for this the first minute of the show. Well, we're going to be talking about plenty of software bugs. Perfect. And it's easy to make that kind of mistake. Excellent. We do have a lot to talk about, so we're going to get into it. We've got something of a lightning round today, a lot of stories to cover. And as you know, we like to start the show with a fun fact. If you're superstitious about Friday the 13th, you're not alone unless you live in Greece, Spain, or Italy. Greece and Spain consider Tuesday the 13th to be the unluckiest day, while Italians are wary of Friday the 17th. And Paul, as you know, we will tie this back in the This Week in Tech History segment later in the show. Shiskaidekaphobia. That's what it's called. uh, I've seen that written a few places, and I'm glad you uh, said it out loud because it's almost impossible to read if you haven't heard before. Chiskaideka. It's just the ancient Greek word for 13 with the word for fear. So actually, that's fear of 13 rather than necessarily just Friday the 13th. But they kind of go together. A day when spooky and odd things happen. And speaking of spooky and odd, this JavaScript developer story is wild. I don't know whether it's spooky, but yeah, it is odd, perhaps a little bit sad. So what happened here? Well, it was what you might call a supply chain attack, where code that people suck in, written in JavaScript into their projects from NPM or GitHub or wherever they get it from, an open source module that's consumed by loads of different projects issued under the MIT open source license. So you are free to use it, provided you don't claim it's yours. So you can even use it in commercial code. And the developer of two such projects, faker.js and colors.js, suddenly decided he'd had enough. He'd given some indication a couple of years ago that he was a bit tired of doing all this work and not getting paid, like the the famous XKCD cartoon, (laughs) Doug. Everything's propped up by this little pillar of program maintained tirelessly by some random person in Nebraska since 2003, that XKCD cartoon. Yeah. This guy obviously decided, well, I've had enough. So faker.js, he just basically pulled the plug on the whole thing. He removed all the source code. He created, if you like, a final version of the project that has no source code in it. It has the comment end game, and it just says in the readme, uh, what happened to Aaron Schwartz? The, the famous hacktivist who very sadly committed suicide after being arrested for taking a whole load of files that he, academic papers that he felt should not be behind the firewall, but the law kind of felt otherwise. So that's what he did with this faker.js. And although it's a weird name for a program, it actually was a very useful thing to have because it creates fake data for you. And you spoke about that in a recent podcast, didn't you, Doug, about the importance of not using real data yep. so that you don't get into privacy trouble well he pulled the plug on that one so if you updated to the latest version it's all gone you don't have to update you're legally allowed to keep using the older one but clearly he's decided it's time to get out of dodge city and with colors.js sadly he took a less understandable approach in that he issued a new version 
that included an infinite loop. It basically caused it to print weird-looking garbage when you ran it instead of just letting you add colors to your console output. You know, like people mm-hmm. like colors to, to highlight words like error, warning, whatever. But if you accepted this update automatically as part of your what you might call supply chain, then suddenly your program would kind of suffer a denial of service because it would get into this loop that ran from a starting value of 666. <laughs> 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 That's why I chose that. Uh, up to, but not including, the JavaScript value infinity. It would go in this loop, printing out, testing, 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 with a whole load of garbage added. You could say that wasn't a very nice thing to do, but you didn't have to accept the new version. And it was in there for you to see. It wasn't hidden in any way. <laughs> it's open source. You could go and review it. And so some people got hit and had to revert to the old version. And this started a whole chain of comments on his GitHub account. I believe he's been locked out of his GitHub account, perhaps understandably. But there are hundreds of comments on there. Some people going, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you, bro. Like, I get where you're coming from. And other people saying, you know what, probably a step too far. Yeah, and think, yeah, think about how many commercial software packages rely on things like this. You almost said log4j there, Doug. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that a little later. I I mean, I wonder if the timing of this was perhaps not precipitated by the the fuss over log4j. So maybe that's what provoked this chap. Because my understanding is he did try to commercialize the faker.js toolkit, which, like I said, is very useful. Quite a substantial body of code that could create realistic data of all sorts. And he did try and commercialize it and create online services that people who wanted to could pay him. And it seems that that did not work out for him. And so it wasn't really sustainable. So he pulled the plug on that one. But unfortunately, he sort of poisoned the well on the other project. And that's where we stand. I suppose this uh, resurfaces the question of the, uh, the idea of a software bill of materials or a, an ingredients list, if you will, for consumers or people that are going to buy your software to see how many open source components it has or where everything's coming from. Yes, maybe that's a silver lining in this. If log4j wasn't enough, where, hey, that was a bug, but everyone got the Dunkirk spirit and went and fixed it and we all survived. You know, it's easy to go, oh, well, you see, you just have to pull together every now and then. But it didn't solve the underlying problem that this feature was added to log4j, what, in 2013? And nobody noticed (laughs) until now. And then when they did, oh, golly, how dare you? Thinking, well, you took the code into your software years and years ago without noticing it had this problem and you didn't pay for it maybe it's a little over the top to suggest that it was anyone's fault but your own (laughs) that you got caught out so maybe the silver lining is that although you could say it was a bit of an infantile thing to do maybe it will help us all accept that like you say a software bill of materials list of ingredients maybe that is a good idea all right, lots of good discussion there. That story is called JavaScript Developer Destroys Own Projects in Supply Chain Lesson on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. So you can head over there to read and opine. And now we're going to talk about Net USB. And I remember the thrill of plugging my printer directly into my home router via USB how many years ago and saying, wow, the, the, we've, we've made it. The, the technology has finally reached its apex. NetUSB is a 
product that you can license from a company in Taiwan called K-Codes. They claim in their marketing material that over 20% of worldwide networking devices have embedded K-Codes code in them now. So it sounds like they've been quite successful. And NetUSB is, if you like, a generic USB virtualizer. So it's not just that you can plug in a centralized hard drive or NAS or a printer like you did, but you can plug in other things like TV tuners, audio devices, all sorts of stuff centrally. So there's, if you like, a sort of virtual USB cable that runs over your network between your computer and, unfortunately, (laughs) a special kernel driver on your router that turned out to have a bug in it that could, in theory, have allowed almost anybody to take over your router. Oh, dear. Oh, dear, indeed. So that bug was found by a researcher called Max uh, von Armerongen at Sentinel-1. Apparently, he was looking at entering the pwn-to-own IoT hacking competition for 2021. Uh, He saw that Netgear had a device on the list, so he thought, oh, I've looked at those devices before. Let me take a look. He found that there was a kernel driver that was listening on TCP port 20,005. (laughs) The number seems to be arbitrary. And of course, that's not a reliable indicator that you have this, but it, it might be a starting point if you know how to do port scanning. And he figured, hey, kernel driver listening on all network interfaces, localhost, LAN and WAN on this port, must be interested in something. If there's a vulnerability in there, might be remotely exploitable. That's where I'm going to start focusing. And so he dug into the code there. He found that it supports a whole load, as you'd imagine, something like NetUSB. It's going to have a lot of different functions it supports. So you think HTTP, well, that's got what? Get, post, head, options, got dozens of commands. You mentioned something like NetUSB with dozens of different types of device, with dozens of different features, probably supports hundreds of different commands. And he found that the command 805F, I think that's just arbitrary, 32,863, that that command, when it processed the data that was to be sent for it, had a nasty little bug, Douglas, involving the number 17. Basically, the bug goes like this. When you want to run this command, it's something to do with a a message. Don't know what the command does. It's actually the pre-processing that causes the problem, not the command itself. The first thing that the kernel driver does is say, okay, I'm going to need some data from you. Tell me how much data you're going to send. And it accepts a four-byte value. You can see where this is going. And then it allocates that much memory. Now, that sounds bad because it doesn't do a length check. What if the person says, oh, I want to allocate three gig of RAM? (laughs) Well, you imagine on the average home router, it's just not going to work. And so it will fail gracefully. The problem is if you say, no, I want four gig minus one byte, in other words, FFFF, FFFF in hexadecimal, then instead of trying to allocate that many bytes, which clearly won't work because a 32-bit router will not have four gig of RAM at its disposal to hand to you, what the code would do it was so well, I'm going to allocate as much memory as you want in case you need that much, even if you don't use it. And I need 17 extra bytes for my own temporary use. So it would allocate very, very, very large positive unsigned integer plus 17 bytes of memory, which would wrap around Millennium Bug or Car Odometer style. And so you could say from the other end, an attacker could say, I want you to allocate me four gig minus one byte of RAM. 
and that will mean that I can send you messages any size up to that amount in future. But the kernel would then allocate a buffer of only 16 bytes because of the integer overflow. And then the kernel would say, right, send me your data. And you send it as much as you want. And of course, if you then send it more than 16 bytes, which is accidentally all it allocated, you've got a buffer overflow inside the kernel. Thanks for coming. Game over. Okay, sounds like we need to wait for a firmware update. Well, the good news is this was responsibly disclosed and the reason that uh, it was only written about this year, even though the work was done back in the middle of 2021, is that this was responsibly disclosed to the company that makes the NetUSB product and then to all the vendors that might be licensing their products so that they were all aware that there was this bug and that they'd need to fix it. So it was responsibly disclosed. Patches are available. The only problem is, how do you find whether you're vulnerable? And as I mentioned earlier, you could try using a program like Nmap or something, a port scanner, and seeing if you've got port 20,005 open on your router, which would be a good hint that you might have this thing, because that's how the researcher found it in the first place. But of course, that's just a symptom. It's the fact that you do or don't have that port open or closed doesn't mean that you do or don't have the bug. So if you have a router that supports this net USB feature, which lets you plug in not just printers, but almost any USB device centrally, then go to your router vendor's website and check whether there's an update. Okay, and we've got some other advice that uh, can help us mitigate such malfeasance in the future. Yes, the other advice we put in the article was not to users of home routers that might be at risk, where really all we can say is patch early, patch often, and check to see whether there is a patch available if you think you have this feature in the router that you bought, even if you're not using the feature, that's the problem. Uh, but we put some advice for programmers, three quick things. Firstly, don't listen on all network interfaces by default unless you really need to. Always check the results of integer arithmetic, especially when it relates to memory allocation. And the third tip is to check for integer underflow as well as for integer overflow. If you imagine running an old school car odometer backwards, the number before zero is 9999999, not minus one, because car odometers can't do negative numbers. There's bound to be 17 bytes spare. There might not be. You owe it to your users to check. Okay, that is home routers with net USB support could have critical kernel hole on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for This Week in Tech History. Well, we talked about Friday the 13th earlier in the show. I, I've got an inkling where this is going. Uh -huh. And I think that it is going to relate to computer viruses, Doug. That's my suspicion. It is. How did you know? This week, <laughs> on Friday, January 13th, 1989, a Friday the 13th virus infected computers across Britain. Now, this was not the first Friday the 13th virus. And it may or may not have been a variant of the so-called Jerusalem virus before it, which was a time-bombed virus that was set to go off starting on Friday the 13th of May 1988, which was the most recent Friday the 13th before January 1989, or any subsequent Friday the 13th afterward, if you hadn't been infected by that point. Both viruses had slowed down machines but left command.com alone. And Paul, you have some great color about all of this stuff because you lived through it. You were there, man how history repeats itself, of course. 
a lot of lessons from those days that we can take to these days. But the one about command.com is quite interesting. From memory, one of the very earliest file infecting viruses in the DOS world, I think it may have been the Lehigh virus from the US. It was very obvious because when it infected the command.com file, there are only a few variants and people had memorized the size of the file. Word quickly got around, hey, this virus business is trivial to deal with. All you have to do is watch the size of command.com and if it changes, you've got a virus. And the inference people were invited to make was, and therefore if it doesn't change, you haven't got a virus. So what did the virus writer start doing almost immediately? <laughs> Infect every file except for command.com because that's the one everyone's focusing on. But it, it does show that it was a different era when you could name a virus after an entire city on the assumption that there were so few that what's the chance there'd ever be another one? <laughs> yeah, times change. Not always for the better. Oh dear. Um, speaking yeah. of times changing, it seems that uh, Honda is either having its own little Y2K moment or it inadvertently built some sort Lovely of work there, time Doug. machine. Thank you. That's a very good segue. I knew what was coming next and I didn't predict that. <laughs> yes, the Honda time machine. It's definitely back to the past, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Not back to the future. <laughs> Apparently, owners of Honda cars of a certain age, so not brand new ones and not brand old ones either. They have to, the cars have to be apparently somewhere around a decade old. On New Year's Day 2022, when people would start their cars, they'd start up and after a little while, the clock would set itself back to somewhere around midnight on the 1st of January 2002. And I shouldn't say this because it's a cruel thing to do, but I am going to say that if you can't remember 2002, oh, no, it's but, when... Uh, it, am I allowed to do it? Uh, Let's just say there was a song on the charts two where the lyrics go, la, 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 <laughs> la, 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 oh, la, no. by the diminutive Aussie pop star Kylie Minogue. That's how far back we've gone. And no one quite knew why. The best guess so far seems to be that it relates to what's known as GPS rollover. So in the same way that the millennium bug was caused by people going, you know what, we're just going to infer 19 and we'll use two digits. Well, GPS, of course, came out in the, was invented in the 1970s and bandwidth from these faraway satellites is very, very limited. And they figured, well, what we'll do is we'll run on intervals of 1024 weeks so instead of a year number there's a week number and there are only 10 bits available for the week number so every 1024 weeks old school gps devices think they've gone back to what you might call day zero huh. i call them killer weekeries <laughs> and those killer weekeries they go from 1980 to 1999 mm. 1999 to 2019 and 2019 to 2039. There was an infamous killer weekery reset on the 6th of April 2019, where people with old GPS receivers were wondering, will they jump back to 1999? Some did, some didn't. But of course, like the Millennium Bug, you don't have to get hit by this only at the exact rollover period. Because as you remember, with the Millennium Bug, what a lot of software did is it went, you know what, we'll assume Anything before 50 actually refers to the next millennium. 50 means 1950, but 49 means 2049. Huh. 
So you still have a millennium bug, but you shift it along a bit. So, of course, let the future generations deal with it. Absolutely. Um, so, of course, you can do that with GPS rollover. And that's what a lot of software does. And how do you know what starting date to use? Well, the obvious way to do it is the time or the date or the year, perhaps, in which you compile the software that's currently running in the GPS device. That can never go backwards, right? And so you can do a comparison that says, well, let's say I'm going to, I don't expect this software to come into play before, say, 2003. So if ever I see a year that's before 2003, I'll just assume I'm out of range. And kind of what you're doing is you're tacking some days, weeks, months, years from the beginning of a GPS to 1,024 weeks, roughly 20 years, 19 years, seven and a half months. And you're basically taking some days and you're shifting them to the end of that killer weekery period. And the suggestion is that that may have been what caught Honda out here. And the reason I'm guessing that's the case is that a reader of the, the Register, which is a, a, an IT publication, popular IT publication in the UK, commented there that he had a Honda CRV that was affected by this. And every time he starts his car, the time jumps back to the 1st of January 2002, as though the, the clock just doesn't know what to do. So it's kind of choosing the start of the year as a default. But then, of course, because the clock's fed by GPS, you can't set it manually. In this case, it looks as though it knows what the correct time is, but it doesn't know what year it is. So it just goes, <laughs> oh, well, I'll just I'll start at midnight, more or less, plus or minus whatever time zone I think you're in. Apparently, this guy found that his GPS thought it was May 2002, which is almost exactly 1,024 weeks ago, which is what made him think this smells like GPS. Interesting, yeah. That's the best guess that I could come up with as to how this happened, that it's caused by something like the Millennium Bug, but related to a limitation which was built into GPS, understandably, in the 1970s, because every bit counts when you have to get it reliably through space. So who knows why it happened, Doug, but it, it is an indication to any programmer that when you're writing code today and you think, what's the chance that the code that I'm cranking out today will still be in use in 2042? And the answer is probably not, but very possibly mm, could you be. You never know. And therefore, the decisions you make today really could affect people that far ahead. Please think of the children, you know what I mean? They're the ones that have to deal Exactly. With this. <laughs> it is like that. As the millennium bug proved, as bugs like this prove, 20 years is both a very long time, but also quite a short time when it comes to the longevity of computer software. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's a, uh, that's a fascinating story. Got some good comments going on too. Get to read all about yes. it. It's Honda Cars and Flashback to 2002. Can't get you out of my head. And now you got that earworm. And, uh, yeah, you said it, Doug. Yeah. I don't think I actually used those words. I just said, la, la, no, la. No, please, no. La, 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 la. We, uh, we, we don't like to disappoint here, so, uh, we, but unfortunately, we have no uh, Apple bug Doug, story I've this week. Doug, I've earwormed myself. You've have earwormed yourself. We have no Apple bug story this week, but we do have, we can offer a log for shell story. So maybe that's our new Apple bug <laughs> story. So we've got a couple of those. I'm hoping that log for j will jolt that song out of my head because I have genuinely wormed myself, Doug, mm -hmm. and I can't really complain, can I? No, sir. Ugh. So it's not quite 
log4j all over again, but it's an important reminder, as you know from last week's podcast, we spoke about how the US public sector decreed the night before Christmas as thou shalt get this done by then, don't leave it, do it today, it's not going to go away of its own accord. Well, come the new year and the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, which is basically the US consumer rights organisation, has come out with quite a quite a punchy, boxy little reminder to businesses that operate in US jurisdictions that even if you're the victim of a cybercrime, if you could have prevented it by patching and it was reasonable to expect that you would have done so, you may also be liable yourself. So they were quite punchy in what they said, and the warning includes these words, Doug. The FTC intends to use its full legal authority to pursue companies that fail to take reasonable steps to protect consumer data from exposure as a result of Log4j or similar known vulnerabilities in the future. Whoa. It's not just naked security saying patch early, patch often. It's the FTC reminding you that sympathy only goes so far and that you can be both a a victim and a committer uh, of cybercrime on account of the same reason, i.e. not having patched. One lets the crooks in, and we'll feel sorry for you for that, but if it lets crooks in where, where you might reasonably have been expected to have kept them out by taking the precautions that, frankly, everyone else was, then maybe you'll have to carry the can for some of that. Okay, so when they say log4j or similar known vulnerabilities in the future, not too far after that, we, we had a similar vulnerability in the future with this H2. Yes, yeah. surprisingly similar to Log4Shell, and in fact found by researchers who were looking through Java code for similar sorts of programming that led to the Log4Shell vulnerability in the first place. Um, this bug, CV2021-42392, this one was discovered by a supply chain management company called JFrog, and they decided, hey, let's go and look through all the Java code that might contain similar use of this Jindy thing, this Java naming and directory interface that turned out to be abusable in the log4j bug. And if you remember Jindy, that's the thing where you actually say, hey, I want you to look this data up. Oh, I haven't got the data, but I'll send you a URL. And actually, oh no, I won't just send you a URL with some data. I'll send you a program, run the program, and see what that tells you. JFrog, I guess, were wondering how many other programs have parts of their code where this Jindy name lookup functionality could be used and perhaps overused in ways that they didn't think about, just like the Apache Log4j guys didn't think about. And unfortunately, they very quickly found one in a popular Java SQL database engine called H2. Now, I have to be honest, Doug, I hadn't heard of H2 before. I've heard of MySQL, PostgreSQL, SQLite, all the NoSQL database stuff. I'd never heard of H2 for the same reason I'd never really heard of Log4j. Its whole claim to fame was it was something that was compact enough that unlike, say, MySQL or Microsoft SQL, where you you run up a server and connect to it, 
this code was compact enough that, hey, you can just suck it into your application, have it as part of your application. Oh, cool. So it was another of those things that applications that you might have installed, they could have pulled this in just like Java apps could have pulled in Log4j. The bad news is that the bug works in almost exactly the same way as the Log4Shell vulnerability, that you get this jindy thing. Instead of just doing a local lookup, you say, hey, do an LDAP lookup. And then when it does the LDAP lookup, you say, hey, here is a URL. Go and get this Java class file and run it. So it's the same sequence of events that leads to the exploitability. That's the bad news. The good news is that as far as I can tell, the only realistic way that an attacker would be able to exploit this is if they could get in and modify the configuration file for this H2 component on one of the computers in your network. In other words, it's more of an elevation of privilege or a, a lateral movement trick than it is remote code execution. Because although you could use it for remote code execution, if the hole were open, you'd have to get local access in order to open up the hole for remote access, if you know what I mean. Huh. In other words, you kind of have to break into the network to be able to break into the network. <laughs> yep. But it is nevertheless something you want to patch because it is a feature that was there by mistake, just like the log for shell problem. So it's still a bug worth patching. It's just not quite the remote code execution potential catastrophe that we saw with Log4Shell. Okay, and we've got some advice. If you know you're, you've got an app that's running the H2 database engine, you can upgrade to version 2.0.206. Or, yes. if you're not sure, you can find instances of the H2 code on your network. Yes, that's a little bit like the Log4J problem, isn't it? When people stopped to think about it, they realized they actually didn't know how many apps they had that were written in Java to start with. And then they didn't know how many of those had included Log4j. And when they went looking, they found, golly, there's a lot more Java apps than we thought. And a lot more of them just happened to have Log4j. Same with this H2. It could be in the app without you even realizing it. There's that and bill of materials again. We need that bill exactly. of materials. Exactly. Like you did with Log4j, you were looking for Log4j dash whatever. Here you can look for files called H2 dash wildcard star dot J-A-R, Java Archive. And when those files appear, if you've got any, they'll probably come up as something like h2-2.0. some number or other .jar. And like you said, Doug, what you're looking for is 2.0.206 or later. Okay. Well, up to it, everybody. That is called log for shell like security hole found in popular Java SQL database engine h2 on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And, and as... don't take it from us that you have to hop to it. Take it from the FTC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't say they're threatening people, but they are saying this it matters. Strongly urging. And you can read more about that one on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. That's called FTC Threatens Legal Action Over Unpatched Log4j and Other Vulns. And as we round out the show, it's time for the Oh No of the Week. Reddit user Lord Dragon 24 Og 1965 <laughs> writes. I think that's when he... Is that the whole name? That's the whole name, yep. Do, do, do it again. I didn't. I missed Lord parts Dragon of it. 24 Og 1965. That wouldn't be his birthday, would it? It might be because he starts by saying, Back in the olden days, I was the only phone support <laughs> tech for one of the ubiquitous PC clone houses that used to advertise in the computer magazines. We had sold 200 computers to a software company. The first one went directly to a VP of the company to test out while we built the rest of the order. The sales rep came to me in a full panic, telling me that the machine, which I had tested before it left the shop, wouldn't turn on. 
I called the VP who said there were no lights on the machine at all. I asked them to look at the back and see if the power supply fan, the only fan in those days, was spinning. He told me to hang on. He had to turn the light on. Wouldn't you know it, he had plugged it into a switched outlet. And Paul, I'm interested to know if this even makes sense to you. It ends with the sales rep saying, saying the sales rep bought me lunch for saving his commission. Do you even have a concept of the switched outlet in your neck of the woods? Well, in fact, in I think every jurisdiction I've ever lived in my life, I have not encountered the phenomenon of an unswitched outlet. Ah, oh, that's right. Yes. For safety reasons, why not have a switch so you can turn it off? It's particularly relevant in the UK where we use ring mains. If one outlet's live, they're all live. Mm -hmm. So we have outlets that are, as I understand it, switched by law. The weird thing that we have, and in two of the countries I've lived in have this regulation, I don't think you have it in the US, you're not allowed light switches inside the bathroom. Interesting. So you either have to have a regular light switch outside the bathroom, or most commonly in the UK, you have a a pull switch where the switch is in the ceiling and it's operated by a string, which does not conduct electricity. But you're not allowed a switch or a plug, an outlet in a bathroom. Well, I've learned so much today. So thank you for enlightening me on this and all the other things we talked about. And if you have an no-no you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles, or you can hit us up on social at Naked Security. That's our show for today. Thanks very much for listening. For Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Ameth reminding you, until next time, to stay Stay secure. secure.